James chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word. Our Father in heaven, I pray now that you would be magnified and glorified from the preaching of the Word. Father, I pray that as we understand James's word to us about conflicts and quarrels and bickering and fussing and fighting, I pray that it would cause us to take a personal internal inventory and where there need to be, Lord, I pray that today you would grant repentance. As you said to Timothy through Paul and 2 Timothy, that we should be praying for you to grant repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. I pray that today, Lord God, if there need be, you would grant that. In Christ's name, amen. We live in a time where lots of money is made on conflict. You don't have to watch television for very long to see that most of the television shows get a cheap laugh on conflict. And I'm afraid that what happens is, for those that watch a good deal of television, is that they begin to be trained that that's the way that we really can interact with one another. If you watch the television show, Everyone Loves Raymond, if you're not careful, you'll think that it's okay to talk to your mother or your mother-in-law the way that they banter back and forth. Our husbands will think it's funny to talk to their wives the way Ray's father talks to Ray's mother. Well, that might be all right for television, but I'm here to tell you that if you're a Christian, that's not all right for you. That's not all right to interact that way. In fact, television is a skewed perspective of just about all that the Bible has to say. When we come to James chapter 4 today, we come to James addressing the issue of conflict. And there are a few things that are more disheartening than witnessing church conflict. If you've been in church for any amount of time at all, you have undoubtedly witnessed church conflict. You've been probably involved in some church conflict. Maybe some of you have even been the cause of some church conflict. There are a few things that are worse than church conflict. It's not to say, don't misunderstand me, it's not to say that there's never a time for there to be conflict. There is a time for there to be conflict. Paul says, if possible, be at peace with all men. And he gives the conditional clause there because sometimes it's not possible. The, the, the point that James is going to make for us today is not peace at any cost. But the problem in most churches is not that we have this ideology of peace at any cost. The problem is most churches is that it's conflict over any issue. So James is going to address the issue of conflict. We come to church to worship God. And when we do, we should rightly expect to find people in the church who love God and His Word. But unfortunately, oftentimes, that's not the case. In too many instances, our churches are being torn apart for hardly ever a good reason. It's always been this way. That's the unfortunate thing. Some folks say, boy, the church is full of conflict today. 
And when I hear people talk like that, I agree the church is full of conflict today. But let me remind you something. The church has always been full of conflict. Read the book of 1 Corinthians. In fact, every member in the church should read the book of 1 Corinthians every year, regardless of whether you read through your Bible every year or not, just to be reminded that the church has never been perfect. When Paul was departing from Ephesus, Luke, when he writes the Acts of the Apostles, records what Paul said to the leaders in the church of Ephesus. He said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. It's always been the case that there's always been conflict, and there's going to be conflict from without, and listen, there's going to be conflict from within. That's really a sad commentary, but it's the way it is. Paul tells the church to be on the alert for wolves within. That's the way it's been. That's the way it is. That's the way it will be until Christ comes back. Why is that the case? Let me tell you why. Because although you may miss a couple of Sundays a year, the devil never misses church. He never misses church. In fact, he came to church with some of you this morning, probably. Not that I'm pointing any fingers. But I'm saying sometimes we do things to invite him in. We bicker and fuss and we fight. Listen, we can be at home and get up in the morning and have an argument at home and yell and scream at one another and get in the car and fight all the way to church. But when we open the car door in the parking lot, it's like a switch is flipped. And someone says, hey, how you doing? I'm doing great, brother. How are you? When you just got through taking a verbal knife and sticking it right in the heart of your wife or your husband or your kids before you got here. The devil comes to church every Sunday and he's looking to ride with all of us. The subject this morning of this morning's preaching is the source of conflict in the church. What is the source of conflict in the church? The aim of these first five verses of chapter 4 is to school us on the source of conflicts in the church and probably in your homes and probably in your workplace and probably in your extended family relationships. The truth of the matter is the source of conflict that James points out for us in these first five verses is the source of all conflict in all walks of life all the time. The only way to really understand what James is saying, by the way, is to go back to chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, where James describes wisdom from above versus wisdom from below. Look back there. Let's read that again. Who among you is wise and understanding? James 3.13. Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of, his, of wisdom. Do you hear the language? Verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's natural, it's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder, disorder in every evil thing. Disorder and all kinds of evil. But the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable and gentle and reasonable and full of mercy and good fruits and unwavering and without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And now he shifts gears. Now he goes back to wisdom from below. But, however, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Remember, wisdom from above is peaceable and gentle. Wisdom from below is, is turmoil and strife and conflict. As we look at these first five verses, he shifts back to wisdom from below. Or the worldliness that he described in chapter 1, verse 27. Turn back there again. Let's not, let's not lose sight of the overall theme. Remember the last part of chapter 1. 
verses 26 and 27, where he gives three characteristics of genuine religion. That it's others-minded, that it's, that it's others-minded, that it, that, it, that it takes care about its tongue and what, what you say. But notice the last part of verse 27. To keep oneself unstained by the world. Beginning in verse 13 of chapter 3 through the end of the book, he's going to talk predominantly about what do we do to keep ourselves unstained from the world. Well, what he does in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4 is he gives the description of the problem. Next Sunday morning, we'll look at verses 6 through 10 where he gives the prescription for the problem. So the first thing that we have to this morning is the description of the problem of quarrels, the source of quarrels in the church. And listen, you can apply this to your marriage. You can apply it to your sibling relationships. You can apply it to your workplace or your business. What is the source of the quarrels, the disruptions, the fights in the places where you interact on a daily basis? He gives three observations, and we'll take them one at a time, but here they are. Number one, in verse one, he names the cause of the conflict. In verses two and three, he offers confirmation that there is a problem. And in verses four and five, he tells the consequences of that problem if it doesn't, if it's not put into check. Let's look first at verse one where he gives us the cause of the problem. The cause of the problem, he says in verse one, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures? that wage war in your members? He asks the question. Notice the question that he asks. He asks the question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts? What's the cause of the problem? Second question is a rhetorical question, which is not so much a question as it is a statement of fact. He asks, what is your problem? And then he says, your problem is the fact that you're being ruled by pleasure. That's what he says. Is not the source of the problem, the quarrels, the conflicts, your pleasures. And then notice how he describes it. That wage war in your members, that wage war in the circle that you run in, your members, the members of your church, the members of your family, the members of where you work. That's the key word for verse 1, the word pleasure. It's the, it's the Greek word hedon. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's the word from which we get our word hedonism. What is hedonism? To be a hedonist is to be a person who lives for self-gratification. Now, John Piper has taken a play off of that word, and he says that he's a Christian hedonist. And what he means by that is, rather than being a hedonist, period, by itself, what he's saying is, is that he gets his greatest pleasure in Christ. He seeks for all of his joy in Christ. He seeks for meaning in his life in Christ. He seeks for satisfaction in life in Christ. So he says he's a Christian hedonist. And it's meant to cause the ears to perk up when you hear the word hedonist and Christian together. But James is not talking about Christian hedonism. James is talking about pure hedonism. A hedonist knows nothing of self-restraint or self-discipline. Let me say that again. A hedonist knows nothing of self-restraint or self-discipline. Oftentimes, when we hear the word hedonist, we think of a sexually gratified person, someone who's just about the pleasure of sexual deviancy. That is certainly hedonism. But that's not the only thing that's hedonism. Hedonism is the person who lacks self-restraint and self-discipline in any area of their life. He doesn't know how to take one for the team, per se. 
There is no ideology of, I'm not going to, I'm not going to force my way. I'm not going to demand my rights. I'm going to suck it up. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to abandon my right to claim something for the good of the whole. That's not hedonistic, see? Hedonistic says, it's my right. I deserve this. You owe me. You've wronged me. You must pay me. You must give to me. It's all about me. That's hedonism, see? Hedonism is, it's all about you. The only person on the team that matters is you. As you can tell by James's question to the church, a hedonist is not necessarily grossly immoral. They're not necessarily grossly immoral. They're simply the person who does not know how to restrain their own selfish desires, whatever they may be. It can be someone who's addicted to sex or someone who's addicted to attention. That's right, attention. A hedonist can be somebody who's all about me, always wanting attention. Do you know anybody like that that always want attention? Let me tell you something, parents with your children. Teach your children to be content without being the center of attention when they're little or you will enslave them with a hedonistic desire for attention as an adult. Hedonism isn't just about deviance, deviant sins. It can be about all sorts of vices. The issue is the person is one of, of self-centeredness. You hear about self-centeredness as a problem within the church. You might be tempted to pass it off as just human nature. But that's not, that's not the way James describes it here. He describes this hedonism as a source of war within the church. Well, that's strong language, isn't it? That's really strong language. That's, a, that's, that's, that, that's what hedonism does, see? When you get somebody, some person, or some group in the church, and they're only concerned about their feelings and their wants and their needs being met, and they become self-centered and self and, 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 and full of themselves, it begins to bleed over into the rest of the church, and it begins to cause a war to be raised in the church. It can be, it can be because you don't get your way on a ministry team. It can be because somebody sits in your pew. It can be because you didn't get a position in the church that you wanted. You begin to be manipulated by your desires, so you begin to manipulate others and form factions and, and cause an us-against-them mentality. Sometimes people will even use this kind of language. Are you with me on this? You ever heard that? Are you with me on this? What do they mean by that? They mean, are you my ally on this as we wage war against, and then they name the person or the problem. When your personal desires for fulfillment and satisfaction take precedent over your loyalty to God and love for the brethren, it's a war. Again, it's vital for you to understand that James is not just talking about some sort of base carnal sexual desire here. He's talking about the desire for personal fulfillment in any and every form, whatever that is. You want to be part of the group. You're not being led into this team. You're not being led into this circle. And so you become self-centered and selfish and begin to look for reasons to criticize and cause problems and stir conflict. James is talking about the way we devote time and energy and money and interest and enthusiasm in any and every way seeking self-satisfaction. Listen, God is not against pleasure and joy. He's against pleasure and joy that's not godly. Make no mistake about it. God's not some big killjoy in heaven. I want you to have this black and white life that's plain and joy-free, and then you'll get the joy when you die. That's not, that's not God's perspective for us. God wants us to have joy, but it's the joy of the Lord. God wants us to have pleasure, but it's pleasure within the boundaries of the Lord's directives. See, the problem is, is that the world wants to kick the walls out and say, there are no boundaries. 
Be true to myself. Do whatever it takes to get what you want. You're in a tough marriage? You're not happy? Get out of it. You deserve to be happy. You're in a tough job and it's tough? Quit. You deserve to be appreciated. That's what the world says, see? The world says it's all about you. If your needs, your wants, your desires aren't being met, then you know what? It's time for a change. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches us. You're in a church where things aren't going the way you want it to go? Leave. Leave. Go find a church where things are going to go where you want it to go. You may find one for a while. And that's all it'll be for a while. James sees that the root of disharmony in the Christian life and in the Christian fellowship, and my friends, we live in a world that is bombarding us with the opposite message that James has given us today. The world that we live in is constantly saying to us through advertising that the root of the good life, the root of happiness is in seeking out yourself, understanding yourself, affirming yourself, pampering yourself. It's all about you. Listen, there are multi-billion dollar industries that are set up in America now where you can go and the whole weekend can be about you. Because yes, after all, life's about you. You work hard. You deserve it. Well, that's not necessarily always bad but it becomes bad when it's the governing principle of your life. The world says to us, if you want to live the good life, you've got to look out for number one. I'm reading Jay Adams' book on, on counseling, on, on biblical counseling. And Adams talks about the Freudian concept that's invaded American ideology and how, I don't know if you're familiar at all with Freud, you've all, obviously you've certainly heard his name before, but Freud's concept was basically this. Freud's concept was that you don't need to accept any personal responsibility for your actions because everything that you've chosen to do bad in your life is because somebody else has influenced you negatively. Are you, are you a kleptomaniac? It's because your mother didn't hold you long enough when you were a baby. Are, are you a, are, do you beat your wife? It's because your daddy beat his wife. Uh, do you lie and cheat and steal? Well, it's because you weren't affirmed by your fifth grade gym teacher, whatever it is. It's always somebody else's fault. It's always somebody else's fault. Well, the problem with that is, is the Bible says that your sin is your fault. You know what? I'm sorry if your father beat your mother, but if you beat your wife, it's your fault, not your daddy's, because you're a grown man and you choose to do it. You knew it was wrong when you were little and you've grown up to do the exact same thing. I'm sorry if something happened to you and you feel compelled to steal, but if you feel compelled to steal, I don't care, by the way, whether you're poor or rich, Winona writer. I don't care whether you're poor or rich. If you choose to steal, it's because you're a thief and you need to repent. If you choose to lie, it's because you're a liar, not because your sister taught you to lie, your brother taught you to lie, not because President Clinton lied about Monica Lewinsky and President Bush lied about raising taxes. You're a liar because you're a liar. Repent. You see, that's what James is saying here. James is saying the problem is not the problem is not somebody else. The problem is you. You're self-centered, you're selfish, and you're making choices that are causing disruptions in the body of Christ because you're only concerned about you and not the greater good of God's kingdom and God's people. Do you know who's who's made a million dollars or more on this? Dr. Phil. Everyone's heard of Dr. Phil, I'm sure, by now. Well, we've seen Dr. Phil on Good Morning America, on Oprah or Larry King. Dr. Phil says that all of our problems need to be worked out from the inside out. That's what Dr. Phil says. The way he says to become the person you were always meant to be is to listen to your inward voice, to connect with, with your authentic self, the real you. The problem with that is the real you is tainted by sin entirely. The problem with that is that the real you is only about you. That's the problem with that, see? 
You want to get in touch with your real self? The real self is this. Outside of Christ, you are dead in your sins and trespasses, and you deserve hell. You want to get in touch with yourself? Get in touch with yourself in Christ. And everything will change. Everything will change. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I've been in Christ since 1990, and i got news for you. It is a war! Because I'm selfish, and I'm self-centered by nature. Not, by, not because my daddy was, or my mama was, but because Adam was, and I've got Adam's sin in me. And sometimes I like it. And isn't that wrong? Yes, it's wrong. And if I don't recognize it and wage a war against it, it will lead me to be self-centered and selfish and do things that are only concerned about me. When we were looking at changing churches and moving from, from Rossville Baptist Church to New Haven, to not New Haven, where are we? Memorial Baptist Church. I pastored New Haven before Rossville, if you're wondering. All right, where's he going? One of the greatest concerns that we had was what will happen to these people when we leave. That's, let me tell you something. That's not coming from me. That comes from God. See, if it were up to me, I won't care. They'll be all right. I'm worried about me. Our, our biggest concern was what happens to when we begin to name these people. What happens to Anna Fulton, this widow woman who we've ministered to for six years? What happens to her when we leave when she has nobody? What happens to this family? And what happens to this family? Not because, you know, I mean, after all, without us, ministry didn't happen. Not because of that, but because we cared about the people. And you know what? The joy of knowing how well we cared about the people comes true every time we go back when the people come to see us because they loved us and they remember our ministry being well. You want significance in life? Love others more than yourself, and they will love you, and you will have genuine significance. See, the problem with self-centeredness is is that you don't love others because you want your own pleasure and your own good and you want others to love you, so you get focused on you that you know what happens? Nobody likes you. Nobody likes a self-centered person. Is that right? Isn't that right? No one likes a self-centered person. No one likes a selfish person. You know what everyone likes? Everyone likes the child that says, no, you go first. Everyone likes the adult that says, no, you go first. Everyone likes the person that's giving Nobody likes the person that's taking and selfish. James says, you know what the problem is in your church? The problem is, is you've got a church full of selfish, self-centered, hedonistic people that are only concerned about themselves. Now, our church doesn't have anybody like that, does it? Yeah. James, or Dr. Field talks about how you, how you get in touch with yourself. You know what? We don't need to get in touch with ourselves. We need to get in touch with Christ. Dr. Field and the world's mentality is indirectly contradictory to the point in Ill that James is making here. What about the disharmony in your marriage? Let me ask you about that for a moment. Now, I don't want in any way to downplay the complex of varied components that cause marital disharmony. I've been married for 18 years, and I've had my share of disharmony. I don't stand up here and lie to you, nor will I air my laundry to you. But I will confess to you that I have my own struggles in marriage. Are you having a struggle in marriage? Let me ask yourself to ask a few questions about this. What's causing your struggle in marriage? You see, a lot of struggles are caused in marriage because one person thinks that the other person that they've married, they've married them to meet their need. But that's not it. Gary Thomas has written a really, book, really good book called Sacred Marriage. The subtitle says, What if God designed marriage to make you holy, not happy? I read that book on the way back from Poland in 2000. It was like he'd been looking at my own life 
been spying in my own living room, in my own kitchen, and listening to my own conversations because he was speaking directly to me. So many times we think that our spouse is there to make us happy instead of us thinking, I want to make my spouse happy, being others-minded first. That's how the Christian works. We're others-minded. A deep-seated selfishness can be the root of disharmony in any relationship. When we become selfish and self-centered about my needs and my wants, we don't care about the other person anymore unless they're meeting our needs and our wants. And it's a negative energy that just feeds itself. And that's not some new age talk. That's a fact. It works the same way in the church, doesn't it? Or what about, what about in the church? Is your estrangement from other Christians, even in this room this morning, related to a deep-seated selfishness? Do you care more about your reputation, your feelings, your needs, your hurts, your wounds, than you do about the brothers and sisters in Christ that surround you? That's what causes problems in the body. I don't care about them. What about me? I don't care what they've done. Look, what, the, look, what about me? What about me? Do you know that when we put Christ first and others second and ourselves last is when we'll find the greatest joy and the most love and acceptance anytime, anywhere. But I want to tell you something. It's not easy to do. For those of you that have done it and are doing it or are waging to do it, it isn't easy to do, is it? It's not easy to do. Because there is this innate sin inside of us that says, what about you and your rights? That's what James is talking about. What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? He doesn't even have to name them. He just says blanketly, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Isn't the source of conflict you and me and me? All right, I'm not, I'm preaching it, but I'm involved in that too. Okay. Hedonism isn't just about base carnal desires. You can be hedonistic about anything and everything in life. And when a hedonist quest for personal satisfaction displaces the priority of God in their life, you are already down the road to worldliness. You can be hedonistic about anything. Television, food, clothes, material possessions, physical pleasure, adoration, attention, relationships, you name it, you can be hedonistic about it. So, so then, what we see from verse 1 is that the selfish desire for personal pleasure and satisfaction is the cause of disharmony in any relationship. Number 2, James gives some confirmation. Confirmation of the problem in verses 2 and 3. He confirms it. This is what he says. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. And then in verse 3, it's as though he says, hold on a second, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, we've been praying a lot, Brother James. So he says in verse 3, well, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so you can spend it on yourselves. You see, it's all about you. Here, I want to remind you again what he says. He says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God the Father and our Lord Jesus is this, to be others-minded, to look outwardly, not inwardly. And what he says in chapter 4 then, verses 2 and 3, is the reason why you're quarreling is because you're no longer looking outwardly, you're only looking inwardly. Hey, we got a little extra money in the budget. What can we do? Let's help somebody. No, let's do something for ourselves. It's not wrong to, it's not wrong to sometimes, periodically, Maybe usually do something for yourselves. But when do you look outwardly? When do you take the opportunity to look outwardly, to look toward others, to help others? 
When do, when do you do that? You know what? I don't care how little you've got. There should be periodic opportunities when you're looking others, looking outwardly. If the widow who only had a mite could give, you have no excuse for not looking outwardly and giving and getting involved in other people's lives. The truth of the matter is, is that most of us don't have more to give because we're selfish anyway. That's the truth of the matter. Is that not the truth of the matter? I'm not saying that we can't have or do or be or be blessed. It's not saying that. It's saying this, though. There should be times when we are others-minded and we're looking outwardly. If we were to sum up the problems that James describes in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, I would sum them up in one word, selfishness. The problems that James described are all rooted in selfish and evidenced by broken relationships and a broken prayer life. So the confirmation that there is a, that there is a hedonistic problem is the number of broken relationships that you have. How many broken relationships do you have? Are you a person who's just surrounded by conflict? Do you ever ask yourself, why? I mean, some people are more confrontational than others. I realize that. You don't have to be the friend of the world. In fact, James is going to tell us that here in just a moment. Friendliness with the world, with enmity with God. But listen, some people just can't seem to get along with anybody. You know anyone like that? I mean, they don't like anybody. They get up in the morning and complain, who's in the mirror, probably? What are you doing in the mirror? Oh, that's me. Who's in the bathroom? Oh, I'm in the bathroom. Wake up in the morning looking for a fight. Are you the kind of person that you just can't get along with anybody? No one does anything right for you. Your kids don't do anything right. Your spouse doesn't do anything right. Your employer doesn't do anything right. The preacher certainly doesn't do anything right. No one does anything right except you. Hmm, really? Really? James would say, you have a problem of selfishness. He noticed, he describes it two ways. First, broken relationships. The good life that James describes in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 cannot be had by essential, by essential selfishness. Why? Because true wisdom comes from above. And the first principle of true wisdom is fear of the Lord. But the first principle of selfishness is fear of self. The awe of self. The respect of self. The concern for self. True wisdom is totally opposite from selfishness. True wisdom cannot be had in a selfish heart. And covetousness and envy and all the outward actions which they result show an essentially selfish heart. Someone who's all about themselves. These broken outward relationships which result from this kind of a worldliness show the inner problem of hedonism. Do you think that it's easy to love your enemy? Why did Jesus say, love your enemies? Pray for those that despitefully use you. When your brother comes and says, give me your coat, give him your shirt too. Why did he say that? You know why? Because to the world, that is totally upside down. That doesn't make any sense at all. But I want to tell you something. A man raising from the dead after three days who died in place of others when he himself was innocent doesn't make any sense either. I'll tell you something else. Outside of the power of the Holy Spirit in you, you'll never be able to do it. If you're the kind of person that says, I cannot forgive, you better question whether the Holy Spirit dwells within your heart because the Bible says in the same measure in which you forgive, you shall be forgiven. So if you are incapable of forgiving, you better go on a spirit search. I'm not saying that forgiveness is easy. Sometimes forgiveness is hard. Sometimes it's hard. But let's face it, there isn't anybody in here probably, probably, I didn't say, as soon as I say this, someone's going to meet me in the back. Let me tell you. I said probably, so don't meet me in the back. There probably isn't anybody in here who's been so offended by somebody else that they cannot forgive. When you look at mothers who say to men who raped and murdered their daughters, I'm in Christ, I forgive you. That doesn't mean that I relinquish you from your punishment, but I forgive you. 
what is your excuse? And you say, that isn't good enough for me. Then you look at what Jesus Christ did who died for you when he was innocent and you were guilty and then came to you and said, come to me. Now what excuse do you have? And you know what the truth of it is? We have no excuse. He gives confirmation of problems. Confirmation of self-centeredness is broken relationships. The second confirmation of of self-centeredness is broken prayer life. That's what he says. First he says that they they weren't praying, and then he suggests that some of them were praying, but they were praying about things for themselves. You don't pray, and when you do pray, it's all about you. If that describes you, you have a problem. You need to repent and slay the monster of hedonism. What does your prayer life look like? It's not, it's not wrong to pray for yourself. James says you have not because you ask not. You know what the implication there is? Ask for yourself. But, but listen, we should be others-minded as well. God praying for these people. If you can think of yourself as this, when you pray for somebody, you can think of yourself as a guard. Think about them being asleep. Think about them being a sheep that's asleep, laying in the green pasture. And you are a shepherd for the night. And you're on guard duty. When I joined the army and I went to basic training, I got there, I, 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 didn't have, I didn't have any clue what I was getting into. But when you get there, most people don't, but when you get there, they have a thing called fire watch. Now, you know what fire watch is? Fire watch means that every hour there's a soldier awake in full uniform and he's marching the premises. And you know what he's doing? He's looking for fires. Now, you know what? Barracks burn down all the time in the army. Don't they? No. Never heard of a fire. So why in the world do we got to get up from 2 o'clock to 3 o'clock? Don't they know that's the best sleep that we've got? To get up and walk the premises and look for a fire? It's not about fire. It's about learning responsibility and how to do guard duty. But they call it fire watch. And you're the only one awake. Everybody else is sleeping. But you know what? If a fire breaks out, guess what? You're awake. And everybody else is sleeping. If something happens that you've got to get everybody up, you're awake and everybody else is sleeping and hundreds of lives may be saved because you are awake. When you pray for somebody else, you think of yourself about being on fire watch for them. There they are in the pasture and they're sleeping and wolves are outside to attack and you begin to pray for them. And you can envision yourself as beating back the wolf. God is using you to beat back the wolf. If you look at this month's newsletter, you'll see that I put in there some things that I want you to pray for me about. Every time you pray for me, you just imagine yourself with a shepherd's crook in your hand beating back the wolf. And we need to beat back the wolf for one another. We need to lift one another up in prayer. We need to beat back the wolf, often beating back the wolf. James says, if you're the kind of person that, number one, you don't pray, you definitely become selfish. Do you know why people don't pray? Let me tell you why they don't pray. Listen. When you were a little child, was there ever something that you wanted, you really wanted, but you knew there was absolutely no way your parents were going to give it to you? You just knew it. You didn't have to ask. You knew. Out of the question, you didn't ask for it, did you? You might have secretly wanted it. You talked to your friends about it. You schemed and you planned and you pretended and you did everything to get it, but you didn't ask for it because you knew the moment you asked for it, you were going to hear this. you got to be kidding me. Or you were going to hear, no. Right? You didn't ask. You know why a lot of people stop praying? A lot of people stop praying because they're not praying for the right stuff. Because the truth be told, if they prayed their heart, they would pray, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. 
And then the second thing is, is that there are those that do pray, but they pray with the wrong motive. They pray for the motive that says, they do say, God, give me the Cadillac. God, give me the house. Give me the relationship. Let me tell you what the first thing is that God is interested in giving you, a broken heart and a contrite spirit. The first thing is that God wants to give to you is humility. The first thing that God wants to give to you is a desire for Him that can say this, I can have joy in Christ in poverty. I can have joy in Christ in singleness. I can have joy in Christ without a college education. I can have joy in Christ at a minimum wage job. I can have joy in Christ with cancer. See, that's genuine joy. Too often we think that we can't have joy in Christ unless we have the relationship and the education and the job and the career and everything else that goes along with it. But you know what? If that's the case, then that's where our true joy is. That's what we worship. When I was counseling last night on the phone, he said to me, the man said to me on the phone, he said to me, he said, I'm angry at God. I said, why are you angry at God? Now listen to this. This is a man who had a moral failure in his life. He didn't commit adultery, but he had a moral failure in his life. Lost his ministry. And he said this to me. He said, I'm angry at God. I said, why are you angry at God? He said, because why would God let this happen to me? Now, it, you sitting there and you're thinking the same thing I'm thinking. You've got to be kidding me. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. That's like the child that gets caught stealing at the store with the parent that then looks to the parent and says, it's your fault, you should have watched me better. Right? I said, come on. Let me give you one scenario that may be that why God let this happen. Now, ultimately, what I wanted to do was really let him have it, but he didn't need to have it because he was already down. I said, it may be for this, so that everything that you've gotten in this life that you thought would brought you real joy was taken away so you could find that you have real joy in Christ regardless of everything else. You know what? I think that may be it. Sometimes in our lives, we get so enamored with the things that we think bring us real joy that God just takes them away so that we find ourselves in a circle and saying, what do I have left? And he says, you got me. And if you find yourself saying, that's not enough, you've got a problem. Because that he is enough. And James says, you're having conflict because too many of you don't think that He is enough. When He is enough. When you became a doulos, a servant, you gave up your rights. You abandoned them. You said, I no longer have rights over myself. My rights are now abandoned. I'm your servant. What would you have me to do? And he says, I want you to love your enemy. I want you to be kind to those that despitefully use you. I want you to give, press down, shaken together, and I'll give back to you. I want you to be committed to me. I want you to wage war against everything that puts, a, puts, up, a, puts up a challenge between you and me. And we do that. Not so we can be in relationship with Christ, but because we are. Now listen, we've seen the cause We've seen the confirmation. Now, let me tell you what the consequences are if you don't make changes. If you find yourself sitting here this morning and you're saying to yourself, I need to make some changes. Listen, heed the rest of what James says. I'm going to tell you how to make the changes next week. But before I tell you how to make the changes, I've got to tell you this morning the consequences if you don't. Look at verses 4 and 5. He gives consequences. Notice what he says. You adulteresses. That's strange language, isn't it? 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scriptures speak to no purpose? And then he quotes, He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in you. Notice how James describes worldliness in verse 4. He calls it adultery. That's what he's been talking about. Selfish, self-centered, hedonism. Now he describes it as adultery. Adultery is when a married person has a sexual relationship with someone other than their spouse. And by the way, men, let your wife define sexual relationship. I know that mine defines it as holding another woman's hand, okay? I'm going to tell you, it may not be exactly what you think it is, okay? You may not even have to touch, all right? It's when you become inappropriately involved with somebody of the opposite sex and you are married. Because it always starts in the mind before it leads to the body. Okay? But we're not talking about that. We haven't talked about that at all. What he's talking about here is selfishness and self-centeredness and the term that he uses, hedonism. We would expect him to describe it as idolatry, but he doesn't, although it is idolatry, but it's also adultery. Why is it adultery? Because if you're a Christian, then you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ. The Bible describes Jesus as the groom and the church as the bride. And the church is the word for the universal unseen church. Everybody who is a born-again Christian is the bride and Jesus is the groom. So when you find your love and satisfaction in something or someone other than Jesus, you are cheating on your husband. I'll tell you that that will help you a great deal in understanding the, the, the role of leadership in the church as well if you read Ephesians 5. Jesus is the head. He is the bride. Or He is the groom. And we are the bride. And when we find our joy in something and someone else other than Him, we become adulterers. You cannot be joined to Christ and the world at the same time. You must pick. Who will you be joined to? Jesus made this clear in the Sermon on the Mount when He said, No one can serve two masters, for He will either hate the one and love the other, or He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. And that's the greatest temptress to most of us. It's the point that James makes in verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Then in verse 5, James tells us why. Because the Bible tells us that God jealously desires the spirit which he's made to dwell in us. God will not be appeased by your little confession of a sinner's prayer. God's not appeased with that. Listen, a lot of people think of their relationship, they think of their relationship with Jesus like this. Well, I prayed the sinner's prayer, and I received believer's baptism. That makes me a Christian. They don't, they don't love God. They don't, they don't wage a war for holiness in their life. It's just this little sinner's prayer that they prayed sometime in their past. Let me tell you, let me just, let me just bring that on over to marriage since James used the word adultery. Let's just, let's just imagine for a moment. You get married. You're married. Let's take the men today. Let's pick on the men today. You get married, you know, I did a wedding yesterday for Arvo and Loretta. Their son Josh was married yesterday. Let's just take you. You got married yesterday. Honeymoon's over. You're back at home. Monday night comes after the first night that you're back at home and your wife doesn't come home from work. She didn't come home at all. You know what's going on? You call the police, they don't find her. You're worried to death. Tuesday you come home. She's home Tuesday night. She's in the same clothes that she wore Monday though when she left. She comes home and she smells of, of stale cigarette and, and spilled booze. She looks terrible. You ask her, where you been? She says, I was out with my girlfriends last night. What do you mean you was out with your girlfriends last night? Well, yeah, we just out having a little fun, you know. Doing a little this, doing a little that. But you're married now. Oh, I'm married. I know I'm married. I, I got my ring on. 
But, but you can't do that. Well, sure I can. Sure I can. I, I said the vow. I put the wedding band on. I'm living here, aren't I? I'll even show up every once in a while. I'll even share some of my money with you every once in a while. But listen, now don't cramp my style and start telling me i got to make all these changes, okay? I'm committed to be married to you, but give me a little freedom. Yet that's how many try to relate to Jesus. I've said my sinner's prayer. I've got my baptismal certificate. I come to church every once in a while. But listen, let's not take it too far, okay? I mean, I want to go to heaven when I die. Who doesn't? And I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And I, and I know that I'm a sinner. Lord knows I'm a sinner, man. If you would have saw me last night, you know I was a sinner too. But I mean, let's not push it too far. And this is what James says to you. God jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in you. Do you know what God wants from you? He wants all of you. He wants every square inch of you. He wants your eyes, and He wants your ears, and He wants your taste buds, and He wants, he wants your wallet, and He wants your wife or your husband and your kids and your work. He wants... I mean, you can have anything you want. You can have it all. What do you want first? He says, what do you like the most? Well, you know what? I love this silver pitcher that my great, 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 great grandma left for me. I wouldn't part with it for nothing. He says, that's exactly what I want. <gasps> Can't you take this glass I bought at Walmart? I don't know if you bought that there or not. Don't take it personally. Oh, I can take that. And I will. But what I want first is what you think is most important because I'm far better than that. And see, if I can just get what you think is most important right off the bat, then you'll know that I'm better than whatever else you've got. Because if I'm better than what you've got most precious, then I'm better than everything else that you've got. That's how we're supposed to live. God wants the totality of your love and loyalty and service. And James simply states categorically that friendship with the world is hostility to God and that if we want to make ourselves to be friends with the world, then we will be enemies of God. Can you imagine being called an enemy of God? An enemy of God? It's one way or the other. You can't have it both. Who do you love? What do you love? Where is your satisfaction? What is the chief purpose of your life? The honest answer, the quiet answer that you give to those questions determines whether you're at peace with God or at enmity with God. I encourage you today, if you would say, I might be at enmity with God, then repent. Repent. Let me tell you what that means. First of all, it means acknowledge it yourself and call it for what it is. Cry it out. Name it. Say, this is my sin, God. And then if you need to make restitution or you need to change behavior or you need to make some actional change, then commit to do it. And don't wait till tomorrow. If it can be done today, do it. And then get up. See, what happens is, is that the heat of the sermon and the moment and the emotion and everything else settles down and then self stands back up. See, self knows. Self knows that it can't compete with the Word of God. A lot of times during preaching, self will just have a seat. Well, I can't compete with that. So self will just sit down back here in the back and wait. Self's thinking while sitting back here waiting. Yeah, wait till I get him out of here. I get him out of here. I'll get back on the throne. See, what happens is, is that whenever you get away from the church, self stands back up and self whispers in your ear all the reasons why you're justifiable in what you're doing. 
So you must wage war against self every single day, fresh and new. In fact, you might want to get up tomorrow morning and look in the mirror and point your finger at yourself and say, Self, you will be defeated today by Christ, for He is King and He's sufficient for everything in my life. Let that be our prayer and let that be our walk and we will not have conflict in Memorial Baptist Church. Let's pray.